0: great to see everybody this morning. Happy homecoming. Um, How many of you guys out there like to hear stories that are strange but true? Everyone get, okay. Yeah, they can be kind of interesting. I can kind of be a skeptic by nature, so uh, it can be hard to convince me sometimes of of believing a story that's really weird. Uh, But the fact of the matter is that we do live in a pretty crazy world. And sometimes there's some really, really strange stuff that you would think there's no way that's true, but it it turns out that it actually did happen. You know, just because something is strange doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Um, After all, if you think about our very existence in and of itself, that's like as strange as it gets. Like, how weird is it that life exists at all? You know, everything that we know about our natural universe makes it seem like Life and cre- uh, like, matter and energy and all this stuff that we have are impossible, yet here we are. We, we have it. Like, we don't even understand entirely how uh, th- this thing we call life could happen, but it- it's strange, but it's true. You know, we're going to continue our sermon series here through the book of Genesis this morning. And Genesis gives us some pretty strange stories, actually. There's a decent number of them. And uh, <clears throat> this morning is no different. Uh, we're going to be looking... <clears throat> excuse me. Looking at a story, uh, that's certainly strange, uh, that you might have a hard time believing it, um, but it is definitely true, and there's a lot that we can learn from it this morning. So I have a ton I'm going to try and walk us through today, so let's just pray and we're going to dive into it. Um, God, we love you and thank you that you are here with us. And uh, God, I just I, I pray even spiritually just for your protection over this room, Holy Spirit, that you would be here, that you would work in our hearts and our minds, um, that you'd protect us against any sort of attacks from the enemy. Um, God, that you'd help us not to be distracted, help us to focus in on what your word has to say, that we would understand it and to really be able to apply it in our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us powerfully this morning in the way that you want to and that you would be glorified. Uh, We love you and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. So, I, as I said, I'm going to be covering quite a bit of material this morning. We've walked through the first couple chapters of Genesis together. Today, my goal is to make it from the second half of chapter 4 all the way through chapter 8. Um, it's a lot of material, obviously. We're going to read some portions of that. But since we're going through so much, there's going to be uh, a lot of it that I'm just going to be summarizing to help you keep along with the story. But... As we've been going through the book of Genesis, Genesis is the first book in the Bible, and it tells us a lot about our origins. Where do we come from? Uh, How did the world get basically to where it is today? Uh, So it's a very, very, very ancient book. It has uh, some very ancient stories, yet the ripple effects of what happened then are still being felt today. And we see that, first off, of course, God created everything. We saw that he created humans especially in his image, and that we as humans were given authority to rule over the rest of the creatures that he created, and we saw that things were good until they weren't, right? Mankind sinned by disobeying God. They were cast out of the Garden of Eden, this beautiful place that he had prepared for them to live, and God promised that they would die because of their sin. And while this is something that would eventually happen, it did not happen right away. Rather than dying for their own sin right away, it says the text, tells us that God made them garments of skin, uh, which likely means that an animal died in their place, and God used that to cover the shame of their nakedness that they had. I preached a lot on that in my sermon on Genesis 3, if you want to go back and listen to that. So although uh, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, they have this death sentence upon them, they know that this is coming, uh, we see that they still actually are able to create life. Matter of fact, it's even after this that Eve uh, gets her name, which means the, the mother of all the living. And uh, Cain and Abel, there's these two sons that are born to Adam and Eve. And while uh, they have the power to give life, they, we find that humans also have the power to take life. As the first ever recorded murder uh, happens in Scripture, Cain kills his very own brother Abel, which is what John preached on last week. Cain was warned about sin, but he disobeyed God, and he fell into sin much like his parents did. And much like his parents, he was also punished. He was given a curse, and he was moved out from the land where he was currently living. But just as we saw that God had grace on Adam and Eve when they sinned by making them the garments of skin and covering their their nakedness and their shame, we actually see that God has a measure of grace for Cain in the midst of his sin as well. So even after he murdered his brother and God pronounces the, the curse on Cain, telling him that the, the ground will no longer yield its, uh, its fruit for him. He was a farmer. He's not going to be able to be successful in that anymore. He's driven out from where he was living. Cain feels like he's basically screwed. And he says this in Genesis four thirteen. He says, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. So we see that even Cain, in the midst of, of his, his sin and his brokenness, he's, he's guilty as can be, that God still gives him some measure of grace and puts this mark on him as a protecting mark. And Cain goes out to start a new life in a different land. And you're hoping that maybe he'll do better with, with a fresh start. Um, but, as we will see as we continue on this story today, mankind continues to be stuck in sin. And this is highlighted in several ways over the next few chapters. We uh, get into a, descend- a, a line, a, we call it a genealogy, and the Bible actually has a lot of these genealogies where you see these kind of family histories, it's just a list of this guy was born to this guy, and this guy was born to this guy. When you're reading the Bible on your own, I would bet that a lot of you guys probably just skip over those real quickly. Um, But they're in the Bible for a reason, and oftentimes there's actually really interesting things that we can learn from them. And sometimes there will be certain characters in a genealogy that stick out. They're special. Maybe they represent something in a big way. Well, there's one guy that sticks out in Cain's genealogy whose name is Lamech. He's Cain's great, great, great grandson. And we meet him in Genesis 4.19. It says, Lamech... Took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. So, this is the first documented case of polygamy that we see in the scripture, someone uh, marrying multiple wives. Uh, we, we don't see an explicit condemnation of this prior to that, but we do see that whenever polygamy happens in the scripture, it usually ends up causing a lot of problems. And you can certainly argue that it's outside of this, this design, this intimate design that God created for male and female to be joined together and become one flesh that we saw at the end of Genesis 2 when God made one woman to complement Adam as his helper. And you even kind of see this in birth rates, right? It's not like you see two women born for every one man. Uh, But anyway, this first documented case of polygamy that we see in the Bible, it's not super surprising when you go on to see the character that this guy Lamech seems to have. Uh, He goes on to speak to his wives in 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. So this is one of those guys, as I said, he kind of sticks out in this genealogy, and in the information we have about him, he seems like he's continuing this legacy of being a sinner, is essentially the, the legacy that we have as human beings. We see that he's greedy. He's taken two wives for himself. We see that he's full of violence. He killed someone for wounding him, including even killing a boy for striking him. We see that he's full of pride. He seems to think that he's really important and that if someone strikes him, he has the right to kill them. And he seems to also trust in himself for protection, almost as though he's mightier than God. You see, When Cain uh, was to be protected and avenged sevenfold, that was a mark that God put upon him. And Cain is saying, well, I'm essentially, uh, or Lamech is saying, I'm going to one-up that. If God avenges Cain sevenfold, Lamech's going to be 77. And he seems to think that he has the power to take that into his own hands. And so we see this theme of man almost exalting himself above God in the character of Lamech. As we see this kind of sad story of uh, man continuing to be stuck in sin, uh, Genesis 5 will continue to go on and and show us um, more genealogy, right? But we're actually going to see not just the genealogy of Cain, but also the genealogy of someone else whose name is Seth. We're introduced to this son, Seth, in the very end of Genesis 4. It says, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. All right, so we've seen that things are not going well in the line of Cain, right? Like Cain was wicked, he killed his brother, he goes out, he kind of gets this fresh start, but then we see Lamech does does not seem to be going in the right direction. But what about this new line? This this one with Seth and this one with Enosh. It says that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. It seems like there's positive and good things that are happening there. Now, Seth's uh, son is named Enosh, and this name literally means man, and it specifically carries the idea of being mortal, weak, or sick. Uh, We don't know much about Enosh, um, but his name is appropriate because it communicates the weakness and the mortality of man, which is about to come into very sharp focus and the verses thereafter. So maybe it was their realization of this, their frailty and the weakness of man, that that got them to start calling upon the name of the Lord. I don't know, I can always speculate there. It doesn't tell us why they started to call upon the name of the Lord, but that starts to happen after Enosh, that there seems to be some level of trying to turn to God. What I do know is that we see a very interesting genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. And the reason is because there's this recurring phrase that happens over and over and over again, which is, and he died. Now, we take it as a given, living at this point in history, that people die, right? Like, if you're writing a genealogy, it almost seems unnecessary to continue writing the fact that that somebody died. But remember, back in this time, death is actually still a relatively new thing. There aren't that many people that have died. We have documented cases of people that were killing each other, But now in this genealogy, we see that death is just what happens to you, regardless of whether someone kills you or not, eventually it is going to happen to you. We see that sin has entered the world, it brought death, everybody was dying, and even though they generally live very long lives, it spanned hundreds of years, that curse of sin still eventually got around to them. And we see this even in the line of Seth, right? The, The line that seems to be more righteous as opposed to this line of Cain, it's still in their line, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. It's mentioned eight times in chapter 5. But, I told you, every now and then in genealogy, there's people that stick out. And there's this one guy named Enoch, not Enosh, but Enoch, who breaks the mold. We read about him in Genesis 5, 21-24. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. That's what we get about Enoch, right? What in the world? That's, that's weird. Especially in the context of every single other person in this genealogy says, and he died, and he died, and he died. And then we see this guy Enoch, Walks with the Lord and it just says he was not. And the the Lord took him. We don't get a lot of material on him. I wish we got more to know uh, about Enoch. Um, But it seems to suggest that he didn't die in comparison to all of these other ones that did. What little we can derive from this brief and strange blurb about this guy Enoch um, is that walking with God was what characterized his life. And walking with God seems to be the exact opposite of death. We see all these other people, and they die, and they die, and they die. What's the one thing we know about Enoch? He walked with the Lord. What happens? He seems to be the only one that escapes this curse of death. But he seems to be an extreme outlier because most people on the face of the earth are still sinning like crazy. And we get one other story that shows this as well. This is probably one of the most debated and strangest passages in Scripture that we're about to read together, okay? It's only four verses, but it it has resulted in endless amounts of material that have been written and endless speculation. So we're going to read this together, and I'm not going to pretend that I have the answer for you, but I'm going to walk through a couple options of of what this could be teaching us. Genesis 6, 1-4. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. That the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Okay, Uh, as I said, this is a very controversial passage in Scripture. There's a lot of different ideas about it. Uh, I am going to walk you through three ideas that I think are plausible and potentially explaining to us what is going on here in Genesis 6, Uh, 1-4. The first option is that this is essentially a statement of the calm before the storm, um, the idea is that this is nothing more than a summary of how people were living and multiplying on the earth in those days, and that it's a brief interlude showing the normality of life before everything was about to get shaken up. People were marrying, they were having kids. Um, the strength of this view is that it's extremely normal. You don't have to see anything weird in, it, in the passage. Um, it speaks as marriage of a, as a normal part of life, which is actually something that Jesus explicitly talked about, Um, When he spoke about the days of Noah, I don't have this on the screen, but in Matthew 24, 37 to 38, Jesus is actually talking about future judgment that's coming, but he looks back to what things were like in the days of Noah. And he says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. Okay, so if you read it that way, it seems super normal. There are some significant weaknesses with this view, I think though, first off, um, it doesn't really seem to fit in line with this march that we have towards coming destruction, right? What we've seen is this this downward spiral of humanity. It's more and more sinful. It seems that God is even upset about this, right? Like after this, He says, "My spirit will not strive with man forever. Uh, his days will be 120 years." Um, So it seems like there's something bad that's going on here that's about to trigger something that's likely going to happen in 120 years. So I think that's a weakness to this view is that um, it doesn't necessarily fit well with the narrative of what's going on. Also, uh, probably the biggest weakness of this view is that it doesn't really account for the different titles that are used. Uh, Sons of God, daughters of men. There's a distinction about these two groups uh, coming together. Uh, If it was just men were marrying women and having kids, it would seem very strange to present it in that way. Also, it doesn't really do anything to help us make sense of these uh, characters, the Nephilim, that are the mighty men of renown. So, if you don't like that view, uh, an alternate view to consider is that this is talking about the line of Seth, that uh, that righteous line of Seth, a relatively righteous line of Seth, mixing with that seemingly more wicked line of Cain. Right? That was the one line that kind of had that representative that stuck out in Enoch, uh, and that other line that had that kind of wicked representative that stuck out in Lamech. So the idea here is just that the sons of God are that righteous line of Seth, and that the daughters of men are this unrighteous line of Cain. The, uh, the strength to this view is that it's also relatively normal, right? It's just people marrying people, you don't have to believe in anything weird. Um, We did just see that there were genealogies that were given of both Cain and Seth. Um, So, yeah, contextually it seems to make some sense. And uh, it also does explain a little bit of how this continues that narrative of humanity kind of becoming degraded and spiraling downhill, right? Because you see even there, these men are entering into marriages with bad women and that starts to corrupt uh, the earth. Weaknesses to this view, though... um, it still isn't really clear why the language be, would be used this way. Why not say sons of Seth and sons of Cain rather than sons of God and daughters of men? Also, why is it that it's only uh, the, the righteous ones are all men and the wicked ones are all women? doesn't really do much to explain anything for that. Um, and it also doesn't provide much clarity for the Nephilim either. Like, why is it that these marriages between normal people, even if some of them were from a righteous line and some of them had unrighteous grandparents or whatever, why is that creating mighty men of renown? So, if you think that that's not what's going on, there is a third option. And, and I, remember, I opened this sermon by talking about strange but true. I'm going to warn you, this is a very strange view. Um, but it's actually the, one of the oldest, the, the oldest interpretation of this that I can find. Um, and it's the belief that this is actually talking about angels meeting with human women. Now, know it's weird. Uh, the, view, the idea is that the sons of God refers to angels who rebelled against God and chose to mate with human women and take them as wives. I 'll do this one in reverse order. I 'll talk about the weaknesses of it first, but then the strengths, because I assume most of us have a natural resistance to this kind of idea. Uh, obvious, the obvious weakness is that this is super weird. Um, <laughs> right? like it's, it's just super weird. Um, it, you have questions about like, how could this even work? You know, how in the world could angels be mating with humans? Um, and then also, Jesus tells us that angels in heaven don't marry or given in mar- or, and they're not given in marriage. Matthew 22, 30, Jesus says, For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So we see that the angels in heaven don't marry, and yet here we have this possible interpretation where we're learning that angels are, are entering into marriage with uh, human women. So there's some weaknesses to the view. However, There are actually quite a few strengths to this view, as as strange as it is. Um, First off, like the view that we just covered, it continues this theme of the fall story and the downward trajectory towards God's judgment that will be poured out on the earth. Uh, However, in this case, it shows us that the the sin that is marring the world is not just a human problem, but also in the spiritual realm as well, so that. We, we've seen a rebellion that was very clearly shown in Genesis 3 as, God, as man stepped outside of what God's bounds were for him, disobeyed and took something he was not supposed to. Here we see the idea that potentially this is communicating angels have also rebelled against God, stepped outside of their pro, proper domain and taken something that they were not supposed to. There's actually a very strong linguistic tie here. If you, I have this on the screen Uh, Look at the comparison between Genesis 3 and Genesis 6. Genesis 3 is telling us this story of the fall. It says, The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Notice that this language is mirrored almost exactly in Genesis 6 too. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful... And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Now, we're reading this in English, but remember that uh, the original language that this was written in is Hebrew. And so translators have to make choices about words. The, the word for good is the Hebrew word tov, which is actually the same word that is also used in Genesis 6-2 to say that the women were beautiful. You'll see that word translated both beautiful and good in various parts of the Hebrew Bible. So you could very much translate this, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And you'd see this language that's mirroring this exact same idea of man and woman that stepped outside of what they were supposed to do and the boundaries God had put on them, took what they were not supposed to have. And here we have these sons of God, in this view, potentially angels that are rebelling, stepping outside of the domain that God has given them and taking something that they are not supposed to have. Okay, um, now, I, as, again, I, I know that this is strange, but the Scripture undoubtedly tells us, regardless of whether you think this is the particular sin that some angels are guilty of, there is no doubt the Bible speaks clearly that there are angels throughout history that have rebelled against God, that have sinned and were punished for it. Take a look at this in Second uh, Peter 2, 4-5. to Peter says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. He goes on to talk about how God knows how to punish false teachers. But in this passage, uh, so Peter's warning against false teachers, but he's hearkening their minds back to the idea, hey, remember how God punishes sin. If you want to be a false teacher, remember that God will punish that. He punished the earth in the days of Noah and he punished these angels that sinned. He puts these two things right next to each other. Very interesting. He doesn't mention what the the specific sin was that these angels committed, but he does mention that it happened and he puts it right in the same proximity as the time of Noah. Uh, Also look at Jude, uh, Jude verse six. Jude only has one chapter. Uh, So Jude verse six says, and angels... Who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So, even here, this seems like it might even be starting to hint more at what we were talking about. This idea of stepping outside of the proper thing that was given for them and, and, and coming into a, a, a place that they were not designed for. They, they, they sinned and they've been now kept in eternal bonds under darkness. For judgment of the great day. Could it be that their proper domain was to be serving the Lord in heaven and that they went outside of their proper abode by taking human wives for themselves that they were not supposed to have? Finally, one other passage that seems to potentially allude to this. First uh, Peter 3, 18-20. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who, were, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So, Peter is talking about how Jesus went and after he was crucified, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. 1 Peter 3 is a very controversial passage in and of itself, so I don't want to open up a whole nother can of worms here. Um, but to, to give you a very brief idea, there's a lot of people, and this is, this is the view I subscribe to the most in 1 Peter 3 as well, is that when Jesus is going and making proclamation to the spirits now in prison, the proclamation that he's making to, it's not that he's preaching the gospel to them, it's that he's making a proclamation of his victory over the satanic rebellion and that these spirits now in prison are imprisoned angels that had rebelled that we've already learned about. It's spoken in this other passage. And he's saying, hey, I, I won. I've defeated the curse of sin and death. And um, we see that these spirits that are in prison, some, there's argument about whether they're angels or humans. I think they're angels. But regardless, we see that they were disobedient and um, that they were disobedient in the days of Noah. So could these spirits be the sons of God who took wives among the daughters of men. All right, I know that's a lot, um, but there you go. Those are three different potential ways of understanding uh, Genesis six one through four. I will say another strength of this view is that it does also give us the clearest explanation for the difference between the sons of God and the daughters of men. This this terminology, sons of God, is used. Um, in some other passages in Scripture that refer to angels, specifically in the book of Job, which um, is also a very, very ancient book. Um, I would also say that there's nothing in Scripture that seems to suggest that this idea is, is completely impossible either. Uh, we are told that angels in heaven don't marry, right? But these, these, aren't, these angels aren't in heaven anymore, right? Like These are ones that, that left their proper domain and now have been punished and cast into pits of darkness awaiting for judgment. So yes, it's accurate that angels in heaven don't do this, but these angels would not actually fit under that category. Uh, the, the ones in heaven wouldn't still be there if they were disobeying in this way. Um, it also makes the best sense of explaining who the Nephilim are. Um, if these were descendants of, of both an angel and a woman, it, I don't know anything about that, right? But, but who knows, maybe that would create some sort of offspring that's a particular type of mighty man in some way, more so than just between two uh, people. Still flesh, nonetheless, but maybe some sort of almost super type person. I don't know. But regardless, there's a lot of super weird things that uh, are in the Bible that are clear. And um, we see that even with like the incarnation, right? The idea that God became flesh and walked among us. That's a a weird idea. Um, But yet the Bible teaches it clearly. We don't have to understand exactly how this would work. It does seem that angels can appear in human form in various places throughout scripture. We see angels that went down to check on the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see an angel that wrestles with Jacob. I think that most of us don't hold a very spiritual worldview. But the Bible actually presents an extremely spiritual worldview. And so I don't think you have to take this interpretation of Genesis 6one to four that this is angels sleeping with women. I realize that's difficult. I'm not sure if I'm even 100% sold on it, but I do think it's a strong view. I don't think we should be dogmatic or divisive about the way that we view this passage, but I do think it's important that we let the Bible guide us in the decisions that we make rather than our own comfort levels about certain ideas that it presents. Um, I wrestled with how much time to devote to this, you know, because you could argue it's not super important to the overall story of the flood, and it kind of just seems like an interesting rabbit trail. So for some of you that are like, really into the Bible and, and really interested in it, you maybe out here with me and you're excited. Some of you are like, what is this guy talking about? All this weird stuff for for so long. Um, the, the reason I wanted to do this is, is, is two reasons. First off, I want to help you with tough passages that you're going to come across in the Bible. My hope and my prayer is that all of us would be uh, people that love to read God's word. I hope that this isn't the only time in your week that you're being exposed to God's word. And if you open up the Bible on your own, there's times where you're going to come across strange, and difficult passages. And so I want to just give you an example of how you can start working through some of those kind of things. Um, There's good explanations out there, even when you come across weird stuff. So I wanted to walk through some of that with you. Also, I really want to help you to have a more spiritual worldview. You know, even if you don't subscribe to the angel's explanation, I want you to think about how open you are to the spiritual worldview that the Bible actually teaches. That like, The spiritual realm, angels and demons, like these are real things, regardless of whatever is going on here with this passage about the Nephilim. Honestly, I can tell you, as I said, I'm a natural skeptic. I'm very much a product of my culture in the sense of someone who loves logic and reason and science, and those are all good things. Like I'm not against those things at all. But I find myself oftentimes going through my life as if I don't believe in the spiritual realm at all. And, and that's just not the worldview that the Bible teaches us to have. And so I actually feel like I've been growing a lot, even in my own personal faith, as, as God has been forcing me to wrestle with scriptures that teach this reality, of the fact that there really is a spiritual realm, and that affects the, the, the world that we live in here today. This spiritual worldview is necessary for believing the big story that it leads up to, that we're about to get to here in a second, and I'm not going to spend nearly as much time on that, don't worry. Um, But you're going to need a spiritual worldview to to even believe this story that's about to come up. And you're going to need a spiritual worldview to believe the story that the flood is, is going to warn us about as well, which we'll get to at the end. So with all of this, no matter what, we have seen that mankind is on a steady downward trajectory, stuck in sin, and continuing in rebellion against God. And with that we've seen that the time for judgment has come. We see in Genesis six, five to seven, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thought